season. Um, actually, I think I preached the last sermon we did on Acts where I covered um, like five verses at the end of chapter four. And so now I'm just going to continue on. And uh, as you can tell by the title, this is going to be a fun text because we're going to be covering a fun story. Um, and I don't have a way to switch my slides, so if my son and or wife could hit the arrow key for me. Perfect. Stop right there. Just uh, as a quick review, we've been going through the book of Acts, and we're jumping back into it, as I've already said. Um, did you press record instead? All right. Just making sure. <laughs> and, and so, just a little review. Uh, Acts is a sequel book to the Gospel of Luke. It was written by a guy named Luke, the same guy who wrote Luke. Make sure you guys are following along. Um, this, uh, this book is focused on the beginning of the church. And so what we're doing is, is we're walking through the book of Acts, and we are looking at different situations and scenarios where the church was learning and growing and becoming the church. Um, we're looking at the disciples' lives as they became the apostles. Uh, they began to perform miracles. They were given the Holy Spirit. They began to grow. Um, a few sections back, we looked at a, a text where they faced their first persecutions. And in response to that, the church gets together and prays for boldness and dependence on the Lord. And so that happened. And then um, in the last sermon we looked at in Acts, for quick review, I walked us through a text that talks about... Um, how the church up to this point had experienced this um, idea of uh, what the text calls who believed were of one heart and soul. The church had come together and they were united. They gave to each other as have need. They were blessing each other. They were hearing the apostles teaching. They were growing. They were getting saved. The church was flourishing. And up to this point, the church had been doing really well. But... Such is life. It turns out the church has flaws even in the beginning. And this morning we're going to look at a story that depicts one of those flaws. And I'm just going to read the whole text real quick. And I'm going to be starting at the end of chapter 4 in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me, 
whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Fun story, right? Yeah, that a boy. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this story. And what I'm going to attempt to do is give us an opportunity to reflect on the fact that, um, well, well, actually, we'll we'll get to that. I meant to start out with this. Um, I'm wearing a rubber band around my wrist, this one right here. Yeah. Um, And some, uh, some people would say that pain is a great motivator to help someone change bad habits. Um, Some people use this like if they have a bad habit of chewing on their fingernails. Every time they start to chew on their fingernails, they use what is called, I think it's called rubber band therapy. We'll just go with that. That's probably not the right term, but we'll roll with it. And what they'll do is they'll start to chew on their fingernails, and they'll be like, wait, ouch. And so what begins to happen is, is the brain associates this pain with the action of chewing your fingernails. And then what happens? Over a period of time, you eventually stop chewing your fingernails because you associate the chewing of fingernails with pain in your wrist from snapping the rubber band, right? And so there's this, uh, there's this idea that, there, uh, that, that people can overcome bad habits. Sometimes it's false thinking. Uh, some people might, uh, you know, like me, I naturally think very negatively of myself. I'm a self-loathing type of person. And so um, if I wanted to enact this type of therapy into my life, I could every time I have a negative thought about myself or even say out loud something negative about myself, which I do sarcastically, which makes people laugh, but is still talking negatively about myself. I could change that habit through this form, as some people say. By every time I do it, I snap. And every time I snap, I associate that pain with Uh, me thinking or talking badly about myself. And therefore, over time, the hope would be that I would overcome speaking negatively about myself through this rubber band snapping therapy. Ouch. That that does actually hurt. I'm, I'm just making myself look tough. But I do feel pain when I do that. Um, And and so, uh, as we jump into Acts... And, and as I've already reviewed uh, what has happened before, and you remember, and, and this is key, we need to remember this idea that the church, uh, Luke was writing this story, and he wrote this story in here for a purpose, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And he wrote it out to give us, uh, first, at the end of chapter 4, he gives us what would be a good example of what the people were experiencing in the church at the time when we look at Barnabas, or Joseph, but they called him Barnabas, and, and we look at this as a good example of what happened in the previous section. He has just told the people that they had, he had just has explained that the church was experiencing this time of great uh, power from the apostles. And they were experiencing, um, you know, uh, common good amongst each other. And they were giving as people had need. And they were sacrificing and serving and loving each other. And going through this period where the church was flourishing and growing. And so as by example... 
Luke moves on in the story by giving you a specific example of this happening. And he says, thus Joseph, um, yeah, right there, perfect. (laughs) Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which is the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and the proceeds to the apostles' feet. And so Luke gives us an example of um, what this looks like by picking on specifically Barnabas. And so that we, as the reader, can see that this this isn't just happening in a common way, but that there are specific people in this time that were doing that, that were taking their own land, selling it, and giving it to the apostles to distribute to those who had need. And so we see Barnabas do this. And as, we, as the story progresses, we move on to the next chapter. Um, and then we actually have to look at what would be considered a bad example. And this story is particularly hard to preach in our day and age because if you look at it on the surface level, this story actually seems to contradict the gospel itself, right? It's a touchy story. But I'll explain to you this morning why it, in fact, does not. So, Ananias. I don't even have to tell you. doing great. All right. So, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's going on here? Essentially what happened was is Ananias, Ananias wanted to be a part of, um, well, let's just say he had just witnessed Barnabas sell land. He had just witnessed Barnabas go before the apostles and lay down the proceeds before their feet. He had witnessed the people go, wow, look at Barnabas. What a generous guy. What an awesome, God-fearing man before us. Barnabas, you rock. You go, Barnabas. And so, Ananias, wanting the same thing to happen to him, goes and he sells his land, but he keeps back some of it. Now, the heart of this issue is not that he kept back some of his... Because at the end of the day, this property was his property. He can do with it what he wants. But the reason this is such a big deal and why it's handled in such a severe way in this story is because he was being deceitful. He was lying. He pretended like he sold all the land and he pretended to give all the proceeds to Peter. And so the the heart of Ananias' bad example is not the fact that he like just kept back some for himself. Like, wow, that's not a big deal. It's his property. Even Peter in the next section is going to lay out for us the fact that, like, this is your land. You can do with it what you want. The heart of the issue is, is that he deceived or attempted to deceive the apostles by going before them and saying, yes, I have also, I have also sold all of my land. Yes. You see? I'm cool like Barnabas. I sold all of it. But there's a couple things happening in Ananias. His name is so hard to say. In Ananias' heart. Okay, we got it. And the two things that I'm pointing out this morning are that, one, he was 
not trusting the Lord because he didn't sell all of his proceeds and give it to the apostles, and he kept some for himself. The reason he did that is because there was a part of him that was still clinging to the idea that our possessions will bring us safety and security and not the Lord. That's part of what he was doing. The other part of what he was doing is he wanted people to think that he was someone that he in fact was not. We're all guilty of this, right? We are all guilty of coming into church, especially church. This is where it's golden in a church. And we walk in and pretend we put on our face. All right, you know, maybe you're fighting in the car with your family before you come in and everything's great. You walk in the door and, ah, hi, okay, everything's great. Right? We all do this. And this is what Ananias is guilty of doing. He's guilty of, one, not trusting God by selling those proceeds. He kept some of it back, which tells you that his heart was not trusting the Lord because he believed ultimately the possessions would give him safety. Right? And then he was trying to come off as someone that he wasn't. He probably would have been fine just to not do anything. Let's look at Peter's response. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now let's break apart Peter's response here a little bit. One, we have to notice and we have to point out that Peter confronted Ananias immediately. Immediately. He didn't mess around. We don't know for sure, and scholars have debated this, it was either that uh, Ananias maybe came before Peter and maybe he had like a guilty look in his eye, but most likely the case because of how specific Peter is, uh, Peter had had something, the Holy Spirit had prompted him and made this known to him beforehand that this was going to happen. And so Peter, being specific in his rebuttal to Ananias, we can see the biggest thing is, well, not the biggest thing, but a part of it, is that he right away confronted Ananias on his sin. It's not a very popular thing to say because it's not something we're very good at doing in the church today. But Peter can serve us as an example. He confronted the sin immediately. The other thing that happened, or the other thing to point out, I guess, as we walk through this story, is he mentioned Satan, Right? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why has Satan filled your heart, Ananias? What is going on? Now, when Peter says Satan filled, most people would be like, oh, so like Satan possessed him? You know, like the exorcist, green vomit exorcist? Most of, Maybe you haven't seen it, maybe you have. Is that what Peter means? Has Satan filled him, possessed him, taken over his body, and now Ananias is out of control and can't control himself, and he's not responsible for his actions? No, that's actually not the case. Um, scholars have called what uh, Satan filled has, uh, could mean, and uh, it, they call it demonization. That would be the fancy word. And, and I wrote down a quote from the commentary I read. I think it uh, defines it well. It says this, 
demonization denotes the occurrence in the lives of a Christian when Satan gets them so obsessed with an idea or course of action that they get carried away and are blinded to the consequences. So, this is what Peter meant. Is Satan had so put the thought in Ananias' head that one, he needed to look good before the church, and two, he couldn't give away all the land. Because if you give away all the land, how are you going to survive, man? You've got to keep part of that for yourself. Satan had put temptations into his head that he had become obsessed over and eventually gave into and didn't think about the consequences that would happen by doing this. He didn't realize it at the time, that when he went before Peter, that he was going to straight up get killed. He was blind to these consequences because he was so obsessed with these two ideas that one, I can't trust everything. I can't give up everything. And I have to be perceived as a person who's willing to do that despite the fact that I'm not. And he became so obsessed with this idea and it had to do with the fact that Satan had influenced him to do it. We don't talk about Satan a lot these days because it's kind of, I don't know, It's easier to talk about our sin. It's easier to talk about our flesh. And that's all good and we need to. But the fact is, is as Christian believers today, we deal with the fact that Satan and his demons exist and they do influence us. And they especially influence Christians because Christians are what? They are children of God. They are in the light. They are in in a relationship with God and Satan wants to do everything he can to thwart that. And so this idea of demonization tells us that we need to be aware of the fact that we can be influenced by Satan. And it's not going to be some huge big thing. He's not going to appear to us like in those new commercials. Is it Match.com? Have you guys seen those where it's Satan and 2020? Have you seen those? They're really funny. Satan and 2020 get married and they meet on Match.com. And Satan's like this big, red, ugly, buff, devil-looking thing. Like he looks like how we paint the devil. It's not like that. It's very subtle. It's an obsessive thought. A lot of times uh, we see examples of this in today uh, in our culture, especially with pastors, um, where they do things that are completely out of character as you would perceive them, right? You see a pastor, and most of the time you see a man who loves the Lord, is seeking to be uh, uh, an example of Christ and to preach the gospel and be a shepherd for his people. And then all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, at least from our perspective, he has an affair. Right? And it seems out of character. But what happens in the heart of that pastor is he begins to toy with temptations that Satan has whispered in his ear. And he eventually gives in to him. And then he eventually falls on his face. That's the kind of idea that Peter is presenting to us as we look at Ananias right now. Why has Satan filled you? Another thing that has to be pointed out here is, again, it's not Satan's fault. Satan doesn't fall responsible for this. Ananias does. Ananias is ultimately responsible for what happened to him. Because, and and maybe I have to mention this too because I haven't yet. At this point, we're assuming Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, that they were saved. A lot of times we read this story and assumed, oh, he must have been a false convert because he did this action. 
But if we understand the gospel correctly, we know that the gospel doesn't save us based on our actions or based off of our choices, but based off of whose choice? Based off of whose action? Christ's. We are not defined by our mistakes as Christians. We are not saved or unsaved by the things we do in this life. Our salvation is ultimately found in him. So I will posit that Ananias and Sapphira were in fact believers. And they fell into Satan's temptation, as a lot of Christians do today and did back then. And so because of that, we have to understand that Ananias was in fact responsible for the choice and the sin that he made. But that didn't in fact thwart his salvation. Another thing we need to point out with this uh, in, in regards to Peter's response is that he is very serious in his confrontation. And he makes it known to us that God takes seriously our sin, right? This doesn't seem like a big deal to us, right? Like, come on, man, he just lied. What's the big idea? Why did he suffer such a harsh consequence? But we need to realize that in this point in history, in this time in the story, God is trying to reveal to us through this text that God takes seriously our sin. God takes seriously the sins of his people, of Christians. Does this mean we need to fear he's going to let go of us and give up on us? No, that's not the point. The point is, is we need to fear and we need to be uh, aware of the fact that as Christians, we are not called to just get saved and live life how we want to. We are called to get saved and submit to his will, not ours, not our feelings, Not what we think is right, but what God's word has revealed to us is right. And we're called to submit to that. And that's the hard part, right? Because God takes seriously our sin. And as believers, we're called to squash our sin. Um, I once heard a pastor use the analogy of treat your sin like a, a lion that wants to kill you, but you get to him first. You drag him by his feet out into a street and you bash his head in with a hammer violently, right? It's kind of a violent analogy, right? But that's the kind of we're supposed to have towards our sin. And that's why Peter confronts it so bluntly to Ananias, especially at the beginning of the church. Well, let's look at Ananias' response. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. There's something I want us to kind of stop and do for a second as we look at this particular part of the text. I think a key thing in this passage that we as believers need to look at is the church's response to Ananias dying. His res- their response was what? Great fear. Great fear. We really don't like reflecting on, on this today because in the church, and, and yes, because it's true, we focus on the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. But something we have to understand is that, yes, God is unlimited mercy and unlimited grace, and he is love by definition, but he's also just, and he's also wrathful, and he's also jealous, and he's also angry. And we don't like to talk about that aspect of him. 
And we would like to assume that, ah, oh, that was the God of the Old Testament. But what's this story tell us? Oh, no, God hasn't changed. God still has a demand on us. And so as the church, our response to this story, for us this morning, we should respond with fear. Fear of God. Because God takes seriously our sin. And as Christians, we are called to run from sin and not be a part of it anymore. We're called to say, not my will, Lord, but yours. Because at the end of the day, my will is going to be sinful. My will is going to say, I'm going to do what's quick, fast, easy, and pleasurable for me. And I'm not going to think about anyone else. That's my nature. That's your nature. And a part of being a believer is getting rid of that part of our lives. I will submit to God. I will love God and I will love neighbor. And I will, every aspect of my life will be submitted to that. How I work, how I raise my kids, how I treat my husband or my wife, how I do my job, how I shepherd a church, body, everything. It affects everything. And we're called to take it seriously. And so when we look at the response of the church, witnessing, and we don't know how many people were in the room. We don't know if it was a crowded room or just a few people witnessed this, but people witnessed Ananias just drop dead before Peter. And what did they do? They responded in fear because they realized God is a God of justice and he takes seriously our call to repent and turn away from our sin. We need to be reminded of that sometimes because sometimes we get so caught up in God's grace. Oh, God's grace is sufficient, right? That we don't take the time to realize that sometimes we need to be reminded that we need to change and we need to run away from our sin. And Ananias' death serves as that example for us. And so we need to take time to reflect on that. We need to take time to reflect on the response of the church to this uh, crazy story, right? Because it is a crazy story. I think this is the only time in the New Testament something like this is recorded. Don't quote me on that, though. All right. Well, let's look what happened to Sphere now. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. So I guess this is essentially Peter's response to Sapphira and what Sapphira does. Now, three hours have passed. We don't know what Sapphira was doing during the time that Ananias came. And maybe she was out looking for her husband. Maybe she was, I don't know, making dinner or something. Maybe at some point she's like, well, where's Ananias? Did he make that donation to the church? All right, well, I better go investigate. And so she comes in and she's immediately met with Peter. And Peter asks her, did you sell the land for so much? They don't give us any details. They don't tell us amounts. But what we do see here is that Sapphira was given an opportunity to repent because he asked the question. And she in this moment very well could have been like, you know what? No, we kept, a, we kept some of it back. I'm really sorry. We kind of were being deceptive here. I, we really wanted you to see us as good, generous people. Like, we really wanted to. She could have done that, but she didn't. Why? She lied. She continued on the sin, uh, in the sin of her husband. And she was given the same fate that he was. She was killed instantly. 
another thing that we see here is Paul's, or sorry, Peter's response to Sapphira was not really one of ultimate judgment because she was given her a chance to repent. And obviously, that chance, she doesn't take it. She lies. And then he proceeds to give her the, the judgment, and she falls dead before Peter, just like her husband. And again, <clears throat> look at the response of the church. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So the response, again, that the church makes to this thing happening is great fear. This kind of story should sober us up because this kind of story should tell us what? God takes seriously the sin that we hold on to, even as Christians. Yes, we have been forgiven for much, right? We have been. But as Christians, we're not called to stay on our sin. We're forgiven, and he calls us to pursue righteousness. He calls us to be a people who uh, are truthful. We're not called to lie. We should come into church and be willing to be real with people because this isn't supposed to be our family. I titled the sermon, uh, Fear and Flaws. Our church is awesome. I love this church. You guys have been my family since I was like 14. All right? But we're not a perfect church. We are a flawed church. We are a flawed people. And one of the things I notice about this church that I think we need to pay attention to is that we... Well, let me put it like this. Um, One of the things that Peter does immediately, as I've already pointed out, is he confronts the sin right away, right? And as a church, we need to be that type of people. But here's the problem, right? Ideally, we should be the type of people who can come up to each other if we notice sin in our lives and be close enough to each other that we can see that sin in our lives. And we should be able to be the type of people who can confront that sin in each other's lives. But the problem is, is that we're not close enough to do it. A lot of times I realize, and and I'm just as guilty of it as I'm saying you are, is the church becomes this place where we come in, we put on our masks, everything's great, but God is good, we don't have any struggles, we don't have any fears, we don't have any doubts, we don't wrestle with sin, everything's great. But the problem is, is that that's a lie. Because we're all in here struggling with doubts. We're all wrestling with sin. We're all the type of people who have doubts and hurt and wonder. And a part of being the community of God is that we open up to each other and become the type of people who can be so close that someone can come up to me and be like, Jeremy, bro, I can see that you're struggling with this and I need to just invite you to repent, bro. Because God takes seriously sin and we need to take care of this. And me being willing and open to be like, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take this seriously. That's the kind of body that we need to be. And I'm going to tell you right now, 
And this is me being confrontational. I hate it. We are not that kind of body right now. But I believe we can become it. And I believe that this story of Ananias and Sapphira looking at the consequences of their sin, looking at the response of the church, the response being great fear should sober us to this idea that God takes seriously sin, even for his believers. And we need to be the type of body who opens up and is real with each other and loves each other and serves each other to the point where we can confront each other. I can't confront people if I, if I don't have a relationship with them. If I do that, I'm just a jerk, right? But if I'm seen as someone who actually cares about you and has your best interest in mind and you believe that, and then I confront you, isn't that what we want? Isn't that how, like, a marriage relationship works? Me and my wife get to know each other, and from time to time, actually a lot of time, she has to confront me because I'm being a dummy. And because we have that relationship, because I love her and she's my best friend in the universe, I listen Most of the time. I'm stubborn. But I get there, okay? And that's what the church body is supposed to be. And that's why I think it's important for us to fear God and remember that he takes seriously our sin as believers. We should not be letting Satan fill us. We should not be letting him influence us. We should be submitting to his will, repenting, and being the type of people who confess to each other so that we can become the body that can confront each other. Does that make sense? there's something funny in this story. Ananias. Do you know what the word, or what Ananias' name means? Ananias means, God is gracious. I find that comical. Because at front face, you look at the story and you're like, well, God definitely wasn't very gracious in this situation towards Ananias. Poor Ananias got the hard end of the stick there, right? But I don't think it's on accident that Ananias means God is gracious and this happened to him. And let me explain why. As I said before, Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. They were believers. But they were deceived and filled with Satan, as the text says, which means he influenced their decision making. He got them so obsessed with an idea that they fell into an old pattern of sin that they should have been running from. And they fell. And though Ananias and Sapphira both died in this incident, as Christians, where did they go? They went to be in glory before God. Now, God probably smacked their hands and said, come on, right? Because he's going to do that to us all, by the way. That's the beta seat judgment in Revelations, and we won't get into that today, but it will happen. We will be judged for how we live our lives here now, even as Christians. And so he probably went into glory, and despite his actions, despite him being influenced and deceived by Satan, you're still saved. And this is where the gospel goodness, uh, goodness comes in, does it not? Because this is a harsh sermon. I am essentially telling you guys, I'm pointing out your flaws, and I'm saying, hey, we need to grow. We need to repent. We need to change. But what else am I saying? I'm saying that the gospel still holds true, even in this story, because the gospel tells us that despite Ananias' dumb choices and sin against God, he was still forgiven, and you're still forgiven. And the gospel still saves wretched people like Ananias and Sapphira, and still saves wretched people like us, like me. 
And as we go forward, we still see that even in this really harsh story, God is still good. And God is still gracious. And God still loves us and adores us and adopts us and makes us his children. And he also calls us to a higher life. He calls us to a higher standard. And we don't... Well, actually, let me put it this way. (laughs) We respond to it by pursuing it wholeheartedly. On one end, because God has saved us, and that's... That should be our response, is pursuing holiness and being like him. But we should also be a little afraid, because this story reveals to us what? God is still just. God is still big. And God can still smush us in an instant if he sees fit. Now, I grant you, I don't think that will happen to you in this life. Maybe. I don't know. I can't say for sure. Is that comforting? No, that's not. But the point is, is this story should sober us. It should create fear in us. It should help us to remember that God takes seriously our sin. And as Christians, we are forgiven. We are called to repentance. We are called to a life to steer away from it and not be about it and not be about following our feelings and what feels right to us, right? Um, I started a devotional with my kids last night, and it's teaching them about God's creation and, um, you know, male and female and all that fun jizz-jazz. But at the beginning of the story... It uh, goes through a proverb that says, the fool says in his heart, or wait, no, no, maybe my wife can remind me real quick what it says. Yell at me. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, that's okay. The point of the text is, and this is what I told my kids, is that the fool lives their life as if God's not there and does things their way. And not his. The wise person lives their life for God and not themselves. Lives their life for others and not themselves. And not because God's going to send me to hell if I don't. But because he is a loving father. And he will discipline us if we don't. He will. Guarantee you that. Because loving fathers discipline their children. Truth. I had to feed my son uh, vinegar the other day because of it. Because I love him. It wasn't pleasant. But it taught him a lesson. And because I love him, I want him to learn that he shouldn't do the thing that he did in order to get the consequence of the vinegar. And God is the same way. He is a loving father, and he rebukes his children. And so as we... um, Oh, and one more thing. Before I... I'm going to move to communion here in a second. Um, uh, It's the first week of the year. Um, And our church hasn't done this in a long time, but um, this week... Uh, Every day, Monday through Friday, I'm going to be in this church at 3 p.m. And I'm going to be praying. And I'm inviting my church body to come and pray with me. I'm trying to do a prayer meeting, if that makes sense. And this is an opportunity to take the first week of the year and pray for our church, to repent if need be, to pray for our ministries. Wednesday specifically, since Good News Club and Youth Jump uh, start back up, This time will be devoted to praying for our youth and praying for uh, the the Good News Club kids as they enter into a fun season of going to Good News Club and learn about God's Word. Uh, But this week, I want to invite you guys to join me because I'm going to be in here. and I'm going to pray. And if you can't come every day, that's fine. But if one day you just happen to be in town at 3, come to the church. I'll be here and we can pray together. 
And we can social distance and wear masks if that's necessary. I'm down with that. But the point is, is that we come together as a body and we pray and we repent and we take seriously God's call in our life to be Christians. You shouldn't be just defined as a farmer. You shouldn't be just defined as what it is you do. I shouldn't be just defined as a custodian, pastor in training. Christ should be our ultimate definition. And because of that, we should get together this week and pray together and ask God to move in this church, to move in this community, and to move, especially in our nation, because it's messy. And, and so I want to invite you guys to do that, especially in response to this story. Because we should be repentant when we look at this story. Because we are all guilty. We're all guilty. And as we uh, go to take communion, um, and we're going to do it COVID style, this is what I want to invite you guys to do. Communion is an opportunity to get right with God before you partake of the bread and the wine, or the grape juice in this case. This is an opportunity to consider and reflect on your life and to respond to this story as the old church did with great fear. God takes seriously our sin. If you are in here this morning and you need to repent of something, do it and then partake. And also remember that if you are being made aware of this, that's God being gracious. God being wrathful is to just let you live how you want because in the end, then you'll really pay for it, right? God's graciousness is to make you aware right now of your need of repentance. And so if that's you, when you come up and take the cup, I invite you to sit down, pray, and if need be, repent, and then partake. Because what we remember is, is that God gives us an opportunity to get right with him as we remember what he did for us when he shed his body and his blood to save us. All right? So, it's going to be awkwardly silent because I forgot to cue music, but that's okay. Um, I'm just going to dismiss you row by row. And, and as you come up, just take and then go sit down. And then I invite you to take some time and pray.